I would like it to go to Dundee. I'd like my body to go to Dundee. I want them to, to gather together all the bony bits and then I want them to restring my skeleton and I want to stand in the dissecting room. So that's, <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, so I, I can carry on teaching for the entirety of my day. Is that not um, Jeremy Bentham? Yeah, yes. absolutely. But you know, immortality. For, oh I, I can carry on teaching for the rest of my day. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pint of Science podcast with me, Callum Davidson. And me, Jim Hake. For an hour or so each week, we invite your ears to join us in the pub as we sit down to share stories with the UK's finest researchers. This podcast accompanies the world-renowned Pint of Science Festival, which is now just a few weeks away, with tickets flying off the virtual shelves. Head to pintofscience.co.uk where you can take a look at our huge programme of events across 40 cities in the UK and 24 countries across the world. Tickets are just £4 and for that you get to spend an actual evening in the pub listening to your local scientists and researchers talk about what they get up to. This week, we shared a pint, well, actually a coffee, with none other than Professor Dame Sue Black, globally renowned anatomist and forensic anthropologist, and presently Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Engagement at Lancaster University. From 2005 to 2018, Sue was Professor of Anatomy and Forensic Anthropology at the University of Dundee, where she oversaw the running of the Centre for Anatomy and Human Identification, a world-leading centre responsible for creating the first forensic anthropology programme in the UK. Sue has led forensic teams specialising in disaster victim identification across the world in Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Grenada, Iraq and Thailand. Work that has led to her receiving her DBE in 2016 for services to forensic anthropology and education. Since August 2018, Sue has been overseeing the engagement strategy for Lancaster University as part of a newly created role. It's easy to see why you want someone like Sue overseeing your engagement strategy. Her autobiography, All That Remains, A Life and Death, recently won the Saltire Book of the Year Award, and I can tell you now, it's an engaging read. I can confirm she also has a very good audiobook voice, which you'll hear for yourself now, as we sit down in the Borough Pub in Lancaster for A Pint of Science with Professor Dame Sue Black. This podcast is made possible with help from our sponsors, Brilliant.org, a great place to head if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, helps make learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. So if you're inspired by what you hear today and want a little more of the science behind it, check out Brilliant.org and download the app. There's a link in the description and the first 200 people to subscribe will get 20% off their premium plan. There's so many questions and complexities <laughs> to tease out here. Maybe let's start with the most simple question. So you're a forensic anthropologist, which is not the same as a forensic pathologist. Correct. So maybe let's yeah. go through what they are. <laughs> What's the difference? What, yeah, what is the difference? If you, if you take the first word, the first word is the important one. That's the forensic bit. And forensic comes from the Latin word pertaining to the forum. And the forum were the courts of Rome. So therefore, anything that is forensic pertains to the court. So it means there is no such thing as forensic science. There is only science as you give it in the courtroom. So there's nothing specific about it. It's biology and chemistry and maths and physics and all the other sciences. Only you're doing it in a particular environment. That's all forensic science is. The thing about an expert is that you're allowed to have an opinion if you're an expert. Otherwise, the evidence you give must be something you witnessed, which is why you're a witness. But as an expert witness, you're allowed to have an opinion. The forensic pathologist, by and large, in almost every country, is medically qualified. When it comes to the deceased, their job is to determine what was the manner of death and what was the cause of death. 
So the manner of death may be stabbing, for example, but the cause of death is blood loss because the knife has gone into the heart or something like that. Mm -hmm. So they are the only ones who can certify the manner and the cause of death in the UK. The forensic anthropologist may be medically qualified, may not, don't have to be in this country, and their job more than anything is about identification. Is what we've got in front of us human? And if it is, what can we tell about it? Because if you imagine that you have a body found somewhere, perhaps badly decomposed, just bone, then most pathologists will go, yeah, it's a skeleton and it's human. Okay? <laughs> and at that point, they'll go, I think you need to give this to the anthropologist. And our job will be to identify what's present, what's absent, because if it's out in the open, then animals may have come along and scavenged it, so you've got bits missing. So we need to track the way along the badger trail or the fox trail into the hole to perhaps find bits that they're still chewing on. Mm -hmm. So we need to know what's present, what's absent. And once we've got it there, we need to determine, is it of forensic relevance? And that cutoff point is about 70 years before the present date. And the rationale for that being that if the person's been dead for more than 70 years, chances of you finding someone responsible are probably fairly slim. And if you put that back in time, that puts us into the Second World War. So the Second World War now is technically archaeological, wow. if we find any of those sorts of remains. And then we'll, we'll lay out the remains and we'll look at, are they male or female? What age were they? What height were they? Can we tell anything about their ancestral origin? Have we got any diseases that we can look at? What are the teeth saying? Do we need to get an odontologist in? Anything that we can find. It's about looking for information that's written into your bones. As, as you grow older, you write your lifestyle into your bones. And we're just looking to find the way in which we can read that USB that allows us to be able to go, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a boy. Oh, yes, you know, he was 12. Oh, yes. you know, Somewhere between anatomy and archaeology or... You see, I think, I think forensic anthropologists yeah. should all be trained in anatomy. And the reason I think that is anatomy gives you so much more than just the understanding of bones. It gives you what muscles attach there, what are the nerve supply to those, what's the blood supply to those. If you can understand the three dimensions of the human body, then you can interpret the bones much more effectively, much cl more clearly. Um, those individuals who just train on dry bone actually find the anatomy really challenging. You've got to dissect. As someone who did an anatomy undergraduate degree, yeah, it's... I don't think I knew that last time. I was going <laughs> to say, it. I thought I'd that wheel that one out now. Where did you do that? Uh, Manchester. Oh, did you know? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of okay. your book is... Um, maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm and probably... And you were dissected I have, Manchester. yes, yeah. indeed. And I was going to actually ask you, one of my most powerful memories is the first time in a dissection room, which I actually didn't find anywhere near as distressing as I thought I would. I found that, like scientific objectivity came quite quickly to me, maybe because my dad's a physio, so I'd spent a lot of time like looking at the body in a way yeah. that was quite, I guess, scientific. But I do recall still getting that, you can't help but get a bit of a light head Absolutely. <laughs> from literally just seeing what's in front of you. I remember, and we didn't do it too gently at Manchester, which I actually look back now and think good. They didn't. They, I think it would have maybe freaked people out more to be too. Is that sort of sort the people that can handle it from the people that can't? Yeah, and I think everyone could handle it in my group. But there was one fainter I do recall when we got shown the first body. Often is. Yeah, and they tend to be the big butch guys who were out drinking the night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I think it was when they handed us a. They had a plastinated head, which okay. was sort of passed That's around. It's a bit mean. It was quite. It's a bit mean. I feel like yeah. looking back, they possibly did that intentionally yeah. as a bit of a sort of. <laughs> we would tend not to do that 
no. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there is this element that says just rip the plaster off, you know, and, and expose people straight away. And a lot of people will respond fine to that. Mm. But you've got to bear in mind that in, in the current generations that we've got coming into university, they've not experienced death, mm. even of grandparents. Yeah. So, so they've got no immediate memory of what it feels like to be around somebody who is dead. And so we do tend to take it a little bit more carefully mm. than we did in the past. We, I don't think we go overboard. Maybe some places do, I don't know. But th- there is that Rubicon that you have to cross in an anatomy department that says, I've never done this before, and the vast majority of the world are never going to do it. And I'm going to make that decision, and I can't go back. And people, it's a bit like Marmite. They either love it or they hate it. Mm. And it either is in your soul or it isn't. There are those who cannot wait to get out of an anatomy department and never have to do it again. And there are those that when they say, oh, my degree was in anatomy, you can feel the warmth. You can feel the understanding of the importance of what it is that you were allowed to do. So when you're at the... Centre for, got it written down, the full thing. Cat, Centre for Anatomy and Human and Identification. There we go. Yes, I can see the letters, but not the, remember the words <laughs> off the top of my head. So there was a course that you uh, ran there that was for undergraduates, right, mm-hmm. going into forensic anthropology. What kind of sort of students do you have coming to the course? A variety. What we try to say to them is, if you're interested in forensic science, don't look at forensic science courses. Hmm. So do chemistry or anatomy or physiology or or something along the line that is a good solid basic science first of all. And so we try to get them away from the CSI sort of stuff that says this is really not what it's like, bones is not what it's like at all. And we normally, we always interviewed. And so, you know, it was almost a red pen through when they said, oh, I want to be like whoever the characters were that were in there. Because at the end of the day, there is an unrealistic expectation that often comes onto them. And it's about understanding there are very few jobs for those that are coming out at the end of it. So we never wanted thousands of undergraduates. It was a very, very small cohort every year. And our principal direction was to train them to be anatomists, first of all, because there's a world shortage of gross anatomists. But they, they often have unrealistic expectations on day one. Because of the word forensics, Mainly I guess. Mainly because of the word forensics. I think forensics does, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. something, doesn't it? It makes you sort of say, yeah. every time I've seen it written down, I'm like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> forensics. Yes, exactly. And it's not like that. It's yeah. really not like that. But what's really interesting about forensic science, I think more than any science, is it allows people to understand something that they can relate to and something they can look at vicariously through sort of fingers Mm. because it means I can understand murder and I can understand rape and I can understand the incident that's occurring and I can relate it because that can happen in a community and I understand that but it's not happening to me so I can look at it as somebody else is doing Mm. it and you know that you're safe. So if you go into a novel where there, you know, there is something that's even quite gruesome about it, there is a frisson of sort of, yeah. oh, it's exciting because you know you don't have to cope with it. For me, it's the most frustrating thing on the planet is to read those things because often you know, they're not terribly reliable, they're not terribly accurate because they're there to entertain, mm-hmm. not to educate. So separating what's the entertainment value and the education value and making that then realistic for the young folk coming in is often quite difficult. Are there any examples of pop culture forensics that do it justice? No. No, okay, that's <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. I, I think there are some crime writers who actually do go out of their way though to make it as 
as accurate as they possibly can and some are much much better than others and there are some that really do take an inordinate amount of time and attention to make sure and to me that's about respect for their readers they want their readers to feel that this is real and they don't want it to think that it's it's a real fantasy that could never happen so so there are responsible people within it but by and large the more popular a program becomes the more outrageous it becomes. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it may start with great intention, but you run out of stories by, by the end of it, and so you have to create them, and then they become fantasy. What do you think is the principal skill at the centre of all these? You've done so many different diverse types of work that there must be something about the way you work that allows you to transition between them all. In part, it's about not caring. Is about not caring about hierarchy, not caring about status, not caring about the latest whatever it is that <laughs> prize or something. They really don't matter. Because the classic Scottish Presbyterian in me says that if you stick your head above the parapet and think you're better than anybody else, there's someone waiting to take your head clean off. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's about trying to do the best I can, but knowing there are people who can do things much better than I can in other areas, and it's about finding them. And if you can find the people who are better than you, and you can help them to achieve that, then almost it's like being a conductor of an orchestra, but not being the person who can play the violin yeah. or the person who can play the flute. And it's finding those those skills that other people have. I love doing that. Absolutely love doing that. I've heard that from so many. That's interesting that you give that answer because I've chatted to other people who are in these incredible jobs, but they're very modest people who typically say, oh, I'm actually not, I'm not, not, not the best person at most things. My, but... my husband will quote Winnie the Pooh at me frequently, which is that I'm a bearer of very little brain. <laughs> and I can, I can be really stupid, really, really seriously stupid. But I'm old enough to be able to recognise it and acknowledge it. And I think it's really important to have the confidence to say, I can't do what you can do. And I've always found that the more that you give out, actually, the more that comes back. So the worst thing you can do is try and keep things for yourself and try and improve things for yourself. The only times in life where I've tried to do things for me have always turned out to be absolutely and utterly rubbish. And so therefore, don't. Can you give us an example? No, absolutely not. (laughs) Nice try. But one thing you can definitely do, I think you would admit, is anatomy. You are a very skilled anatomist. So what was it that drew you to anatomy originally? Boredom. So my first and second years in university were exceptionally dull. And I was questioning what on earth I was doing in university. I was doing things like zoology and learning from genetics whether the fruit flies had rounded bottoms or pointed bottoms. I just didn't care. What was the title of your degree? It was a human anatomy degree. I oh, did. so it was human yeah. anatomy and you were doing, I suppose, but actually. First and second year where you got to do all sorts of subjects. Right. So I did soil science and learned that I was never, ever destined to dig holes, ever. <laughs> I did zoology and found that in zoology you had to touch dead rodents. I was never, ever going to do that. Um, <laughs> I did botany and it was just so mind-numbingly dull. However many plant stems you have to cut with a razor blade, never saw the point of it. Psychology, I think the purpose of psychology at the time was to make everybody so bored that they wouldn't take it beyond that first year. (laughs) And so by the end of second year, I was thinking, I can't do any of this. What am I doing? And I thought, I'm going to make a very mature decision. I'm going to decide what am I best at out of all of this. And there wasn't a lot to choose from. And I was surprisingly good at botany, and I never quite understood why. 
and we did a, a module on histology, so looking at cells down the microscope. And I thought, well, do you know that's okay? So I went and I spoke to the anatomist and I spoke to the botanist about, you know, do I have a future in these fields? And the botanist, God bless him, was the most boring man I've ever met. And I'm sure he was a wonderful botanist. But I thought, you know, I can't do this with her. I can't, I can't name and draw plants. In my mind, I thought botany was about naming and drawing plants. Totally wrong. But I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I went to the anatomist and said, look, please tell me that third year's got something more than microscopes, because I can't bear looking at another pink and purple microscope slide. I have no idea what the heck it is I'm looking at. And she said, no, 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 we dissect in third year. Oh. And I thought, oh, I can do that, because I used to work in a butcher shop. And so I understand knives, and I understand muscle, and I understand bone. I'll do that. And that was the choice. It's interesting that you brought in the dissection in, in third year at that Only stage. Because that was literally the first thing. It, it was almost a selling point of the degree when yeah. I started. It was like day one into the dissection room and it was a room on the third floor that only the anatomy, it was like 15 of us on my course, I think, yeah. out of a faculty of like a thousand, two thousand students. And it was like, we were the 15 that got to go up to that yep. room and go in and the smell of formalin hit you immediately and the door closed and everyone else was like, I wonder what goes on in there. Yes, <laughs> we, we, got, we had two years of general science which I think gave you time to decide what it was that you wanted to do mm. and, I, and you know I, I'm very rude about it and I shouldn't be but it was that time that allowed you to say it's good to know what you're not good at mm. and if you know what you're not good at you can put it aside or not interested in or not interested in yeah at that time you're absolutely right but then anatomy I thought yeah I can do that and that was it that, that was just yeah, everything changed from that point forward. So, so you said you work in a, in a butcher shop. Was it a leap going from doing, presumably, cows and pigs and sheep to doing people? Yes, <laughs> but it was a desensitisation as well. So my father was a great shot. So my father would go out and shoot things, only ever to eat. Not my mother. My mother would say. So he'd come home with pigeons and rabbits and deer and such things. And my mother was very squeamish. So my job was to pluck them and gut them and skin them. So from a young age, I never thought anything of that sort of thing. And so when I needed to get a Saturday, I was told by my father I had to get a Saturday job. The butcher shop was a very obvious one. And so you get used to having your hands covered in, in blood and you know, knowing what muscle feels like and bone feels like. So I felt there was a similarity. There, there was a natural progression, but there's nothing that prepares you for that moment when you walk into a dissecting room. And as you say, formalin hits you. Mm. Of course, it doesn't have to be formalin these days, but at that time it was formalin. And it's a smell that, that every anatomist recognises and every anatomy department smells differently. So you could take me blindfolded into an anatomy room and you would know when the room you were in was your own because there's a particular smell okay <laughs> and when you look across the room and you have all of these tables all covered with a white sheet and a mound underneath there is that lump in your throat thinking oh, i've never done this before <laughs> never done this before and, and you pull the white sheet back and you're confronted with somebody who in life chose to do this and that's, that wonder has never left me, that the most amazing thing that you could choose to do when you're still alive is to sign a bit of paper so that you and I could learn something. No one's ever going to give you a gift like that again. And the weight of that, I think, settles on your shoulders very quickly. And the nonsense that you used to see in films about you know, medical students stealing cadavers and putting them in taxis and such things doesn't happen. Mm. Because the minute you walk into that room, the respect and the dignity that you feel 
sits on your shoulders. If it doesn't, then you need to be doing something else, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. And then what you have to try and do is get a scalpel blade onto a handle, and then you have to try and take that first cut through human skin. And all of that is really difficult. The first time you cut, the first time you saw, the first time you take snippers to cut up a rib cage, the first time you take a reciprocal saw to cut around the top of a skull to remove a brain. All of those are firsts, and you never, ever forget the first, ever. It's so different to what you expect, speaking from my experience at least. I was shocked at how different a fixed body in that state is. It's just so different to a living body as you know it. Everything from the colour to the appearance to the just the toughness of tissues. I was completely surprised by all of it, even though I'd obviously done quite a lot of reading in advance. Yeah. It's like a wildly different experience to what but you had you ever seen a dead person before? No. And I see, I think there's the difference. So alive is very different to dead. I know that sounds really stupid, but you know, seeing... So I was with my father the moment he took his last breath, and whilst he was still breathing, he was my father. When he stopped breathing, then he was different. Mm. What was left behind very clearly for me wasn't my father. I would, nothing would have persuaded me to leave my father while he was still breathing. Once he'd stopped breathing, it was a body. I had no difficulty leaving. And there's something that happens between the living body and the dead. And then the next stage is between the dead and the embalmed dead. Mm. And the dead and the embalmed dead are different, as are the living and the dead. And those phases... I think are really helpful. You briefly alluded to it there, but after your anatomy training, you were a lecturer in anatomy for a time, and that was at St. Thomas's. It was. Now, there is a point, and it's not, I've read a lot about you. <laughs> and it's not and some of it might be true. <laughs> it's not particularly well defined. The point at which you transitioned into forensic work, you basically did some incredibly high profile stuff between about 1992 and 2003. This was your work for the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office and also for the UN. But what's not clear to me is whether, well, we'll talk about what that work was in a second, but firstly, did you seek out that change to forensics or was it something that came to you as someone who was an expert? I've always been interested in police work, um, mainly because one of my first boyfriends was a policeman. So, you know, that helps. And so I've always been interested in that. And when it came to my fourth year in university, we had to do a research project. And all the research projects were on things like rat brains and hamster gubbins and you know and I can't bear rodents just can't bear rodents so I went to the anatomist and said what else can I do and she said well let's do a project on identification from bone Mm. so my research project in my honours year started me on that route and then my head of department came to me and said we've got money do you want to do a PhD didn't know what a PhD was but I said yeah of course I will and so I continued the research that I'd done in fourth year which was again on identification if you have a skeleton how can you identify the basic characteristics of them and in one of the I think it was the first or second year of my PhD there was a case where a young man had been flying a microlite and it had crashed off the coast and his body went into the sea and they didn't find the body and eventually bits of him were washed up and this was in days before DNA, which shows you how old I am. And um, <laughs> the, the pathologist said, well, because of the fragments, perhaps somebody from anatomy can come over. So my supervisor and I went over. Uh-huh. So the first case that I worked alongside her was really the identification of this young man. And I thought, I, I quite like that. And my research project was very much within that field. So occasionally I would do 
cases as they came along, but always as a second to her, which is the appropriate place for a PhD student to be. And then when I went to London and I was working in the anatomy department there, there was a phone call came in one day from the pathologist and it was to say, look, you know, we've got some bones that have come in. Any chance you could come and have a look at them? And so this was somebody who'd gone missing, suspected it was a murder. Intelligence suggested the body had been dismembered and various parts wrapped in black plastic bags and sent to a, a rubbish dump. So the police had been searching through the rubbish dump. And of course, as you go through a rubbish dump, you're going to find everything and anything. So they're finding all of these bits. And I think the pathologists were getting a bit bored that they kept coming in with more bits and more bits and more bits. Of course, nowadays, what we do is we'd send the anthropologist out to the scene mm. and anything they found at the time, we'd be going, nope, 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 yeah, not interested. But they brought this pile of bones in and the police officer was a he was a really curmudgeonly miserable sergeant and they called the girl down from anatomy and he sort of looked me up and down as if to say girl yeah what do you know and i thought this is never going to be easy so i put the the bones in a bag sealed the bag and put them on the radiator whilst we were chatting away to him and then i opened up the bag and i put it under his nose and said what what do you think you can smell and he went what that smells like roast lamb it's exactly the sheep bones and because he'd identified the Rashid bones, he thought, oh, actually, she's not bad. <laughs> and so everything that came in from that rubbish site from that point onwards, the girl from anatomy got called down. <laughs> and then very slowly I started doing more and more cases around London before I then went out to the Foreign Office. Okay. So it was a gradual yeah. process. It's so interesting to hear those sort of butterfly effect moments if you hadn't <laughs> had that one project that yeah, absolutely. <laughs> changed everything. Yeah. Now, there's a lot to talk about in the forensics bit, but you've actually worked in so many places and I imagine had to do so many interviews that my, my approach <laughs> to this question was, rather than make you talk about the stuff that probably conventionally comes to people like us who are coming to this fresh, it might be more interesting to ask, is there any of your experiences doing field forensic work, the, the work that you did abroad and you've worked in places like Grenada, you've worked in Iraq, you've worked in Sierra Leone, are there any that you don't get the chance to talk about as often? So what I do is I, I choose the ones that I'm prepared to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's why you hear about these ones very frequently. There are a lot of other ones that I don't talk about, either for reasons that it's about protecting the deceased or the families of the deceased, or it's the fact that I signed the Official Secrets Act. Oh, wow. And so therefore can't. <laughs> so there's a lot of work that I've done that just simply doesn't get discussed because it's not appropriate to do so yeah oh wow okay she says shutting that down (laughs) well i mean shutting it down but also i guess in a way leading me to the things you have talked about then just basically to give you were looking for a scoop and it wasn't no oh i don't have enough journalistic (laughs) prowess to look for a scoop it's more we just don't want you to have to talk about the same thing (laughs) i'm quite i'm quite proud that i've actually even been considered someone that could ask for a scoop that's what it feels like for someone to think you're in (laughs) The next Paxman, right? Yeah, Yeah, no, but I mean, that that work, obviously, for a lot of people, is what brought you to their attention, because that's such a a huge part of what you've now done. I mean, you received so many honours and accolades. We could fill two hours with running through those alone. (laughs) We could fill at least 30 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. But that work presumably must have been extremely hard so how did you find the strength to cope with both the kind of mental and physical difficulties of that work okay so i am a tough old bird a really (laughs) tough old bird i have skin that is as thick as a rhino and there's very little that gets underneath there and the reason for that is that it, it is i think 
cultivated over the years, but it's also important when you're a part of a team. So, you know, you might be with police officers who've never done anything like this before, scientists in the field who've never been in this sort of an environment. They will look to you to be the person that doesn't fall apart. And the team dynamic that you have is really important. And the stabilizing, civilizing role in a team is a mother figure. And it's a mother figure that can say to people, you've had enough to drink, go to your bed. <laughs> Won't matter tomorrow morning. Yes, I know you love your wife and we'll speak about it tomorrow, but go to bed. Or it's about listening to people's fears and being able to talk it through with them. And if you're going to be the mother figure, the most destabilizing thing for any child is to see the mother fall apart. And so therefore you can't. And if you, if you choose to take the mother figure role, then you have to be stalwart in it. And it becomes, for some, a very easy role to take, and one that I find very easy to take. I've known my husband now for 41 years. <laughs> she says so. Um, and you know, so I, I am from a very, very stable relationship position. And the things that I've done over life, I've accrued. The desensitization and the stability has come with that. My life has been very stable. And so I can afford to portray that because it is, it is real. There are things that you will see that you wish you'd never saw, things you'd hear that you wish you'd never heard. All of those are going to occur, but you have to have the maturity to put them into perspective and to be there for other people. Whether it's the, the deceased or the families or your team or the courts, it is about duty and it's about service. You don't ever see the queen breaking down. Mm. It's because she understands duty and service. And I think that's what's at the core of it. So you're performing emotional labor as well as the real labor, yes. but you don't feel any sort of extra pressure from that. It fits you quite easy. Huge amounts. Yeah. There's a huge amounts of pressure. What you can't do is show it. And you can't manifest it and you can't allow it to erode the role that you chose you choose to take. The physical stuff, I'm quite open to say I'm far too old to dig holes <laughs> and I have no desire to dig holes. I let other people dig the holes and then they send me in the holes and that's absolutely <laughs> fine. So you get to the limit of, you know, when you're strapping on the knee defenders because you're recovering a body from a fire, you think, oh, I know this is gonna hurt tomorrow. I really know this is gonna hurt tomorrow. So there is a limit physically, in real physical terms, to what you can do the older you become but there is more that you can often do emotionally and in a sort of leadership role. You could view it as quite an unhealthy attitude in some ways to, to your own well-being, to be like not able to show what must be quite but emotionally draining. Well, that, yeah. But I chose it, and I'm a control freak. <laughs> um, and so therefore I'm allowed to do that. And yeah. I think that's what makes it easier. My father, who, who was probably one of the most important people to me, my father didn't ever display emotion. I can't remember my father ever hugging me. I always hugged him. I can't remember my father ever reaching out to hold my hand. He didn't do it. Men of his generation, Scottish men of his generation, <laughs> did not do that. But I knew how much he loved me. And so it, it, it is, you know, being able to, to see things and compartmentalize them, but not needing necessarily to display them. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of me that I suspect is quite repressed in that sense, <laughs> and then terrified of anybody ever rootles around inside my head and lights the genies out, then we could be in real trouble. <laughs> but right now I can honestly say I have never lost a moment's sleep. I've never had nightmares. I've never got to a point of something that I don't feel I can cope with, but I'm not so arrogant 
as to know that that might not happen because I've had dear, dear friends who, without any forewarning, have suddenly found themselves in that post-traumatic situation. And the most important thing you can do is to have awareness of it. So I, when I'm working with a team, we spend a lot of time getting to know each other and talking to each other. And our job is to just watch for the signs of somebody who's not coping and to have the confidence to be able to say, you're not coping, we need help. As training for a forensic anthropology position, is that, is that part of the training, presumably, like becoming aware of that? Is there psychological preparation given to you? I had no training, so it, it wasn't in, in my time. Okay. Now, very much so, we will ease our students into it really very gently so that if we've got young anthropologists coming through and they want to start doing casework, we will choose what cases we start going out to them with. There's no way we would put them out straight away to a mass fatality event, for example, mm. because the, the potential for there to be you know, a huge impact on them. Uh, that that's not professional for us to do that. The most unexpected things can upset you with this as well. I found when I was listening to the book, All That Remains, I found myself really oddly upset by a bit that I don't think you wrote with upsetting in mind. Oh, it was the bit, it I'm was, not feeling any pressure uh, at it all. Was the bit, <laughs> <laughs> it was the bit where you wrote about a, a chap from like thousands of years ago who'd been involved in some horrible murder oh, right. where he'd been like s- smashed in the face yep. with all manner of like blunt instruments yeah and i you know as someone who's like seen post-mortems dissected bodies like heard a lot of you know heard, heard much more what you would consider conventionally moving stuff in this neck of the woods that just really got to me because it was so brutal it was and it was the way it was because it was historical i think for me and when it becomes archaeological people are more happy to be like oh and a spear had got him in the face and i was thinking like well that's still like happened to this guy (laughs) yeah it did so he was pictish and we we called him rosemarkey man because there was there's a place called rosemarkey which is just north of inverness on the black isle and there are local caves around there and local archaeology groups go out and they excavate the caves and on the sort of last day of of excavation of that season uh, right at the back of a cave they call smelter's cave because it's where they were smelting iron they came across some bone and of course as they dusted it all off there was this perfect skeleton the feet were crossed at the ankles so the knees were splayed and the hands were down by the side. So he was clearly laid out with a very big stone on his chest and stones down his arms as well. And so because he was so beautifully preserved, they thought, actually, this might be a police case. So they got the police out and the police got the coroner out and the coroner went, we'll ask Sue. And (laughs) so they sent us the images and we went, that's archeological, are you sure? Because I promise you, it's archeological. And so they excavated it all. And when we brought the body back, the skeleton back it was clear that all of the body was intact apart from the head and we thought this is an opportunity for our young anthropologists to write this up as a case and they can then try to do the trauma analysis it was just beautiful insofar as they first of all had to piece the skull together and then they had to try and figure out from the lines of the fractures, what was the first hit, what was the second hit, the third hit, and they were totally at sea. They, they couldn't get it, absolutely couldn't get it. And that's no disrespect for them because it was so complex. If you imagine an egg 
and you crack an egg and then once it's cracked you then start cracking it again trying to figure out which was the first crack and which were the other ones it's really complicated and then leave it for how many thousands of years as well and gluing it together <laughs> yeah and so what we did was we left them to it and it took them several weeks and they had to come back and go, we think it's this and this and this and, and Lucina and I went no. Can, can we explain to you how it was? And so we used it as a means to show them this is the first one and this is why it's the first one. This is the second one and why and third. And by the end of it, they went, oh, yeah, you know, I get it. So it was a great learning experience. And the first thing that had happened to him, and I might get this wrong, but bear I'll with remember. me, was, was that there was um, trauma to the mandible. So there was evidence of a, a spear or a lance or something that had gone through one side of the mandible because you had a, a rounded opening that it had gone through. And then someone had clearly come in at that point and give him a, a great big blow on, on the side of the cheek as well. So we had massive fracturing associated with the jaw. We suspect then what probably happened was that at that point he fell backwards. And as he fell backwards, then the skull fractured where he hit probably stone, I would believe. And then as he was lying there, somebody took what was probably that same spear and then poleaxed him. So it went right through from the back of the right eye out into the back of the left eye. And then there was a massive hole at the top of the head. So we think they actually just, you know, that was the sort of final coup de grace that probably happened as well. So being able to put those together, what we then did was we reconstructed his face and he was gorgeous, I have to say. He was absolutely gorgeous. Chris Wren, who reconstructed the face, is just the most talented artist that you can imagine. And because I'm from that part of the world, the local archaeology society decided they would put on an evening and not tell anyone that I'd been invited. <laughs> and nobody knew about the skeleton because it had been found on the last day and we'd done all of the, the work on it without anybody locally knowing. So when they all turned up to the presentation about the smelter's cave, they thought they were going to hear about walls and they were going to hear about, you know, pits and all that sort of thing. And there were one or two people who were sort of looking going, why's she here? You know, uh, because Inverness is a very small place. And so then I stood up because they, they, they went through the presentation and then at the very last slide they said, and at the back of the, the cave we find this. And they showed the photograph of the skull and the room just gasped. It was utterly wonderful. So I got up then and did my bit about him and who he was and how old he was and this sort of thing. And we'd got the archaeological dates in, so we knew he was Pictish. And then I got to the end and said, now, do you want to see what he looked like? <laughs> OK. And of course, we put it up and again, he had another gasp. And a woman at the end of it said, I came out thinking I was going to hear about walls and pits. And she said, I've been on this roller coaster ride of emotion. And she said, I've sat and I've laughed and I've cried. And I feel as if I could go outside and see him you know, in the street now because it's just become so real. And that's what the storytelling can do. It can take something that is so almost dead and dry and dusty and turn it into something that's real. Yeah. So what we then did was um, the Royal Society of Edinburgh goes out of Edinburgh every two years and we do something as outreach. And that particular year, in fact, still ongoing, we were doing RSE at Inverness. And so we got Ian Rankin to um, at Cromarty, because he holds the Crime Festival in Cromarty, to put out a prize to the local school kids at different age categories that says 500 words, write about the story of this man. Oh, wow. And so they wrote their own stories, and then Ian gave out the prize for the best stories, which were then read out. Are they available anywhere? So cool. They, they will read. be, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, Cromarty Crime Festival. 
Cool. That sounds just brilliant. awesome. Oh, that's just so cool. Yeah, that's Genius really nice. bit of public engagement there. <laughs> yeah. Now you know why I do what yeah. I do. Yeah. But I did find that story disturbing. So thank, thank you it for is, that disturbing. It is disturbing. So now you can read it 500 more times in different versions. <laughs> <laughs> it is disturbing, but you know, it's in the past. Yes. It can hurt A long way in yeah. the past. Yeah. Our world is a fascinating place, as Sue and all the other scientists in the Pipe of Science podcast are proving. And if you'd like to learn more about our scientific world, Brilliant.org is a great place to start. Brilliant.org is a website and app which teaches you science from the ground up by setting daily challenges and explaining the science behind them. Every day they publish challenges that provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. Each problem provides you with the skills and framework you need to tackle it, so you learn the concepts by applying them. There are quizzes if you want to learn more and a community of fellow problem solvers if you get stuck. And Brilliant.org, of course, is on everything from computational biology to orbital physics. So whatever you'd like to learn more about or brush up on, there's a course or a chapter for you. Here's something else to help your knowledge evolve. We've put a link to Brilliant.org in the episode notes for this podcast. The first 200 people to sign up for the link will get 20% off their premium plan. Your new role <laughs> is very different in my head. You're probably going to tell me it isn't, but I feel like you've had quite a big transition recently from working in forensics to this role that you're doing now, which is Pro Vice-Chancellor for Public Engagement. For like Engagement, full um, stop. Oh, Engagement, full yeah. stop. Engagement, full stop, which is a much wider portfolio. What is the key difference then between okay. Public Engagement and Engagement, full stop? So Engagement is really, it's very simple. There is a very good reason why you get engaged before you get married. Okay. In terms of engagement, in that period you decide, do I want to live with this person? Do I like this person? Can I change this person so that I like them better? Or can I decide, you know, there's no future in this at all? And engagement is just about relationships. And the university enters into a relationship with a myriad of people, whether that's its students, its staff, whether it's the businesses in the locality outside the window here, whether it is with policy and government, whether it is with international partners, it's all about the relationships that a university has with all of its stakeholders. So fundamentally, I'm Tinder for a university. <laughs> all I'm about is relationship making. What a great job. Yeah. That is, but wow. it is a huge job. It's yeah. a huge job because it's got to happen on campus. It's got to happen locally. It's got to happen regionally. It's got to happen nationally. It's got to happen internationally. It's a lot of swiping. Yeah. <laughs> so what inspired? So some would call it a midlife crisis, okay? Um, and I'm going to name drop here, so I'm really, I'm really sorry, but a very dear friend of mine is uh, Alan Alder, the actor. And Alan was over visiting us in Dundee a couple of years ago. And what he said to me was, the most important places in the world are thresholds. So when you cross from one room into another, important things happen at a threshold. And he said the person who epitomised that was Peter Falk. So when Peter Falk, the actor, played Columbo, he always had the killer question right on the threshold. And he said the problem was that Peter Falk, once he became Columbo, he could never be anything else other than Columbo. I recognised that. I had become, if there's a dead body, it must be Sue. And there was a part of me said, I need to do something else. I need to get out of my own comfort zone. And I have these three ladies in Dundee that can take on everything I've left behind so much better than I ever could. I need to go do something else. And I need to get out of their hair to allow them to do it. But it needs to be something where I feel 
I can make a difference. And engagement for me is so important in a university. My entire life has been about engagement, about telling stories, about being able to communicate. And if you can do that at a university level, then the impact you can have on the quality of teaching, on the impact of your research is absolutely huge. It's, it's a big change. But it's this thing that says, can I do it? And I don't know if I can do it. I know that it was, it was, it was right to move. That was absolutely the right thing to do. Was it the right move? I don't know. And I won't know for another year. Mm. And it will only be the right move if other people tell me it was the right move. If I can't do the job, if I'm not doing it properly, then either they need to scrap the job or you know that they need to bring somebody else in. But my aim for the job is to be redundant from it in four to five years. Because if I'm redundant from it, it means I've embedded the culture and you don't need a Pro-Vice-Chancellor for it because then it's actually within the actual DNA of the, of the premises. And I think it's very close to that anyway. Now it's about drawing together all the different strands of all the incredible things that everybody else is doing mm. and trying to make some sense out of it. Making a story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make a story. Make a story. And congratulations on All That Remains. I've got the audio book first. Oh, can you imagine how so awful that is for my husband? Yeah. Isn't that really <laughs> awful? My poor husband. But, you know, he thinks, oh, my God, I can't escape from her if you put it on. <laughs> I, I wrote it and didn't expect it to do what it's done, quite frankly. So what was the, the reason you the wrote reason it? The reason was, if you go, go back, my grandmother was a great storyteller and my father was a great storyteller. And very few of the stories were true, but that didn't seem to matter uh-huh. terribly much <laughs> to them. And one year, my girls gave their granddad a paper pad and a pen and said write down all your stories granddad and he never did and of course Alzheimer's took over and all of his stories went and I thought you know it's so sad that in your life you have your stories but if you don't commit them to paper in some way they're gone and we lose the stories of everybody's life and then somebody said to me what's the book that you'd most like to read and for me I'd have loved to have read a book that was never written and never will be written now by my grandmother because she grew up in Glen Elk in the middle of nowhere in the 1800s and I would have loved to have known what her life was like and it just sort of brought me into thinking you know we might not think our own lives are terribly interesting or important but to our children and our grandchildren and those that are yet to come what seems mundane can be really important so the honest truth is, is I wrote it for my kids and my grandkids and they're the only ones who've never opened the front page. <laughs> I've never read a single word of it, God bless them. But in my naivety, I didn't expect, in all honesty, didn't expect it to be of any interest to anybody else. I really liked the chapter in All That Remains about uh, your uncle and how you, at your uncle's funeral... <laughs> what does so, that phrase mean? <laughs> that phrase means, before I wrote it down, I'd never told anybody about Uncle Willie. Uh-huh. And Uncle Willie has become the most loved character <laughs> since he died that I think I've ever come across. He was the most beautiful man. He was a really big man in so many ways. His personality was big and he was very large in girth as well. And he was in his 80s when he died with not a single grey hair on his head. You know, a full shock of black hair. And he was so funny. He, he'd been through the wars and he never ever talked about them as a lot of men of that generation didn't. But as a child, he treated you as an equal. You know, he never talked down to you. 
he always talked with you. And I think that's a great skill that somebody of that generation has. So I grew up just loving Uncle Willie. Himself and his wife were the family that brought my mother up because my mother's parents died very early on. So they became her, her parents effectively. And so they were my, my surrogate grandparents. And I was in London by then, so I'd done my degree and I was teaching in St. Thomas's and Uncle Willie died. Uncle Willie loved his food. Every Sunday, my mother took him up to their house to make sure he had a good Sunday lunch. And poor Uncle Willie, bless him, had a massive aortic aneurysm. He just blacked out, passed out, and fell face forward into her Heinz tomato soup, bless her, <laughs> which disturbed my mother terribly because of the mess that it made <laughs> across her white cloth. My poor mother was a very sensitive sort. And if Uncle Willie had been alive, he'd have killed himself laughing, literally. <laughs> he'd have thought that was the best possible way to go. But then when we came up, my father was a, a regimental sergeant major, so my father barked orders and you were expected to do as you were told and not question. So when I came up from London for Uncle Willie's funeral, my father barked at me, go check, Uncle Willie's okay. And I, I had no idea what he meant by okay, but father had said it and, you know, <laughs> salute occurs. Yes, and off I went in to check Uncle Willie. And it, it was that moment, that was the first time I'd seen somebody that I knew yeah. dead. And as a result of that, it was for me that moment of realizing it's not the same thing. It isn't Uncle Willie, it is this, this vehicle. And I thought, well, what does my father mean, check he's okay? And I thought, well, I'll be an anatomist then. <laughs> so I, I opened his shirt to check that nobody had, had opened up his chest and removed his organs. I checked that his false teeth were in his mouth because he would have been horrified if he hadn't had his false teeth. I opened his shoes to make sure that he was properly embalmed down towards his feet. Why I thought that mattered, I have absolutely no idea. And I even wound his watch. And I have no idea again why that, because he wasn't going to be looking at it where, where he was going. But it was almost as if I felt this was kind of the last laying out process that I could do. And I could go back to my father and go, he's fine. It's like an MOT. He, got, he had an MOT. I gave Uncle Willie an MOT. Yeah. And I said, yeah, he's fit to go into Tomney Hurek Cemetery. And it's something you could do as well, I guess, for the skills you had. It's all like, if yeah. anybody had come into that room, they would have locked, locked me up in an asylum at that point. You know, checking out, did he have his false teeth, quite frankly. You know. I think it's fascinating. I really yeah. do. I'm not just yeah. saying it to be uh, complimentary. I, I wouldn't But if be. I'd known I was going to do that, I might have written it differently. That's so interesting, though, because part of what comes across in the book and, and you've jumped straight to oh, I'm so sorry. all the stuff I wanted to... No, no, I, I wanted to talk about this. In, in particular, even your, your grandmother, who was one of the first yeah. bits of the book, where I was like, wow, this is like this amazing... Is it um, Mar Margaret? Was yes, it? Margaret yeah. Ross. So, so Margaret was this character you describe as... She talks about maybe like having like sort of a second sight. Oh, yeah, she was thing. a West Coaster. So the Tuchters firmly are embedded within, or the Tuchters of her time, are firmly embedded within the fact that if you couldn't explain something, it had to be supernatural. And so they grew up with this whole concept of, of this continuum of existence from you know, before birth to after death sort of thing. And she talked always about death being her friend because you, know, you met it on a regular basis, quite frankly. But because she grew up in Glenelg in the 1800s and she thought death was her friend, so she talked to death all the time, then what she said was, it would be really improper of me if my friend was a man. My friend has to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And so for her, yeah, death was always a... she. It was always feminine. So when any time she talked to me, it was always about she. So death for me has always been in the feminine form, never in the masculine form. So I find it quite odd when people talk about death being a man. 
because that tends to get associated with the harder things in life. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. the, the sort of uh, the pain and the yeah. grief. Whereas if you think of death as a woman, you actually tend to automatically think of it as being something that is more compassionate, more caring, something yeah. that yeah. is yeah. easier, or, or something sort of that's the, more the sensitive. The Grim Reaper and all that sort of exactly. It's all quite like yeah, exactly. it's very it's quite violent. Yeah, imagery, yeah, really, it? it is, yeah, and yeah. we're all guilty of it. Yeah. But but when you put it into the perspective of changing that gender, suddenly death isn't as scary as it was. Yeah. And that's the way she was. Yeah. Total believer, total believer in life after death. Do you think in some way she was almost like, a, if, if science is a way of explaining the world, she was basically a scientist because she was, that was how she was Yeah, but science things. needs to have some evidence. Oh yeah. And I don't think my <laughs> granny had the slightest bit of evidence whatsoever. I think the only spirit she ever saw was once a year on Hogmanay at the bottom of a glass because <laughs> that was the only time she was ever allowed to drink. Do you know, no, I don't, okay. I don't, I don't think she was a scientist, bless her. But it, it's not up to me actually to say it's nonsense. Just simply because I don't have the evidence doesn't mean that there isn't. The overlap between what is faith and belief into what becomes evidence and what becomes fact is really interesting. And so, so for my grandmother, it was total faith, total belief. So that is the evidence for her. So she was a scientist in her own right, yeah. but would have found it difficult, I think, to persuade the rest of the world that there was anything <laughs> much in there. Do you think maybe she might have sparked or at least passed on your ability in storytelling? Because all that remains is one of those interesting books where you do tell so many great stories, even though your job requires this scientific objectivity to what can be extremely emotional subject matter. You manage to bring out those stories very effectively. But my job is about stories as well. So that if, if you think about ultimately what a forensic scientist does, our job is to go into the courtroom. And in the courtroom, people don't speak your language. Mm. So you have to be able to tell your story in the courtroom in a way that people will understand. That doesn't mean you can fabricate it, like my grandmother would do, <laughs> but it does mean you have to be able to get across sometimes what are very difficult concepts into simple language, because they're the ultimate triers of fact. They're the ones who'll decide who's guilty and who's innocent. Mm. And, and you've got to bear in mind that when you go into court, this is their game. It's their rules. They're only going to let you play with the ball whenever they want you to play with the ball, but they're actually not going to tell you what the rules are for playing with the ball. And so all you can do is try to cover every single possible angle that you can think of. Try not to get flustered. Um, what I usually do is look at the barrister while they ask the question, and then I turn away from the barrister to give my answer either to the judge or to the jury. Never ever look at the accused because you can get flustered by that. And a barrister wants you to look at them because they want to be able to give little signals that will throw you off. So you never do. And you take that big breath that shows you're thinking about it before you answer. And keeping eye contact with the judge or keeping eye contact with the jury is important. Mm. Not looking at the barristers. The first thing I do when I get into the witness box when nobody can see it, I take my shoes off. And in Scotland you stand. Mm. So I always wear shoes that I can slip off because then at least you're grounded and you're not thinking, oh, my legs hurt. You know, at least you're comfortable. And you have to, at the outset, you are, whichever way it is, whether you're working for the defence or the prosecution, your side, if you can think about it, are the ones that take you first. So depending how long they talk to you, you have the sense of they're on your side and they're trying to show the world that you're an expert. And that's right at the beginning of the day when you're actually at your most alert. 
by the time you get to the end of the day, when the other side takes over, you're now tired and you've been through this all day, but they're the ones who are trying to show that you're actually a blithering idiot <laughs> and you're not an expert whatsoever. So we have this adversarial system, which is adversarial on the scientist. And what a lawyer will do generally is that they will first come after your evidence. And if they can't get any hold on your evidence, they will come after you for procedures. Mm. So did you sign this? What date did you sign this? Why didn't you sign it? Aren't expert witnesses supposed to sign this? Oh, that doesn't make you very good at your job, does it? Mm. And so if they can't get you on, on procedures, they will come after you personally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, you know where you are on the pecking order. So hopefully part of your forensic work, which you can talk a little more about, is some of your more recent work, relatively, which concerned the use of hand anatomy yeah. to convict suspected sex offenders. Rather than me do a botched job of explaining that, <laughs> would you like to talk a little bit about what I'm alluding to? Well, I would, but I'm going to ask you to give me a left hand. Okay. Okay, right. so I'm now holding your left hand. You have got the most wonderful vein patterns. Look at them. Uh, thank Absolutely you. fantastic. We'll get and a photo on the block. What you also have on the other hand is that you have what are called nevi, so, so little marks, okay, that are moles that are formed. Uh -huh. So what we found is that when individuals choose to abuse children, often what they will do is they will photograph or video themselves doing it. It's a rare crime. If you're going to rob a bank, you don't film yourself doing it. But if you're going to abuse a child, often you do. The reason being you want to relive the experience or you want to share the images with like-minded people or you want to use it to actually elevate your own status within that particular community. But because it's a touch crime, often what we will find is that the hand and the forearm of the perpetrator are often captured in the images that they're recording. So anatomically, we can look at the variation that occurs within the human hand and the human forearm in terms of its veins. And I guarantee that the pattern of veins on the back of your right hand will be different to the pattern of veins on the back of your left hand. If you look at the pattern of skin creases across your knuckles, they're different on every single finger. Where your freckles, your moles, your birthmarks occur are random. Where your scars occur, providing they're not surgical scars, are random. So what we do is we look at these offending images, and I was doing one of those this morning before it came out, is that we will then abstract what we can see as anatomical features. And then I send it up to Lucina, my colleague, and say, can you find any anatomical features in here? And she will abstract them, and then we will compare what we both have. And that then sets for us the anatomy of that offender in those offending images. And when you're analysing those images, is that something you're doing, is that automated on a computer yeah. or is this visual? We have to do it visually. Right, okay. <laughs> At the moment we have to do it visually. And then once we've settled on this is the anatomy of the offender, of our left hand or our right hand of the offender, only then will we open up the custody images mm. of the suspect that the police has. And we will then compare the anatomy that we see of the suspect with the offender. If the vein pattern is different, you can't explain that. And therefore, it can't be that person. Mm -hmm. So we can exclude people from being the offender with 100% certainty. What we can't do is with 100% certainty say it is them. Right. All we can say is all of the anatomical features that we see that are formed from different etiologies, different origins, are all present in both the suspect and the offender. And that's usually enough for those who are guilty um, to change their plea. So about 82% of the cases that come to us result in a change of plea. That saves a tremendous amount of money and time in the courtroom, but it also means that vulnerable witnesses are not having to give that evidence in court. That's incredibly important. But it's also important that we go to court, and we have been in court, and it has been tried in court, 
and it has been proved successful in court, both for the prosecution and for the defence. So people have been wrongly accused. It's important that we've got it on both sides. And was your team the first to pioneer this as an approach, or was this something that had been... It's very rare that anybody is a first in anything. We thought we were. Someone must have been a first. We thought we we were. And then when I had a research student doing some work for me, she said, you will not believe what I've just found. And going back into the turn of the uh, last century, not the century gone, the one before. So going back into the 1880s and, and into the 1900s, there was a professor in Padua called Tomasia. And he had said there are six patterns of veins in the hand that will separate people. We never knew it, never knew it. (laughs) But at the time, somebody who was writing a crime novel had obviously read it, and I can't remember what the crime novel is called now, but it was in the 1920s, who then put this into a crime novel. And we didn't know it was there. (laughs) So whilst we were doing it, we thought we were the first, but of course we weren't. And rarely are innovations real innovations. You're always standing on the shoulders of giants. Well, it just struck me reading it. I was like, it's incredible work, but it's also like, you would think something that someone would have said at some point. If, if <laughs> yeah. there's a crime and you can see someone's yeah. hand in, in an image, you yeah. would think someone would say, well, maybe we should look at that. But it disappeared. Yeah. Absolutely. From Tomasia yeah. to the point that we were doing it, it disappeared. Biometrics came out, people identifying you know, the living but not the dead. Mm. It didn't morph over into the forensic field until we came along. Mm-hmm. And it came along just because of a case that was presented to us that we didn't know what to do with it. And it was the Metropolitan Police who had a case of a young girl who alleged that her father would come into her room at night and would interfere with her. And she told her mother, and her mother just didn't believe her. And what she then did, an incredibly brave and, and, you know, just amazing young lady, she left her Skype camera on her computer running. And if you leave your camera running at night, it clicks into infrared mode so you can see in the dark. An infrared light, when you shine it on skin, interacts with the deoxygenated blood and veins, and the veins stand out like black tram lines. Mm. So she captured at half past four in the morning a hand and a forearm coming into the field of view of her camera and doing exactly what she said was happening to her. She then took that to the police and said, yeah, this is my father and this is what he's doing. And so the, it rattled around inside the Met for months saying, what the heck can we do with this? How, how can we use it? And Nick Marsh, who was head of photography, said, I don't know what, but tell you what, we'll go and ask Sue, because she might know somebody. Go and, and ask Sue. Yeah, that's often, I'm, a lot. Yeah. I'm often the bottom, scrapings <laughs> at the bottom of the barrel, okay? When they've gone everywhere else, they think, mm, okay, we'll go and ask Sue. And I said, well, you know, I don't know what we can do, but I'll tell you what, if we compare the vein pattern of the offender with Dad, and if they don't match, it can't be him. Rule it out, yeah. I said, but if, it, if they match, I can't tell you anything about it. And they went, well, that's enough. If actually we could exclude Dad, that would be good. So, of course, we couldn't exclude Dad. Mm-hmm. So by the time we compared it, we saw that the offender and the suspect, the, the, the veins were exactly the same pattern. So we went into court and the judge called a voir dire, which quite right, to say this is not the kind of evidence we've heard before. And I need to make up my mind whether I'm going to allow this. I'm going to make it admissible because I need to decide is it science or is it witchcraft? And so the jury get thrown out whilst they decide. And the judge decided that on the basis of the fact that anatomy understands variation and the biometrics industry has shown that vein patterns are so variable, he would allow it into court. So it's the first time in a UK court that vein pattern comparison had been heard. The jury uh, retired, the jury came back and they found Dad not guilty. And that was the point at which we thought, 
well, this is nonsense. Who else is in her room at half past four in the morning doing what she says is happening that has the same vein pattern? And we went to the barrister and we said, what did we do wrong? Classic thing, you blame yourself. What did we do wrong? How did we not get the story over? How couldn't we convince them? And the barrister said, I don't think there was any problem with your evidence at all. I just don't think they believed the girl. She didn't cry. She didn't break down. She wasn't a mess. And I thought, what kind of an idiocy is that when you have a young girl who's prepared to tell her mother, prepared to record it, prepared to take it to the police for a case to go against her father, and because she doesn't then do what people think she should do, which is, you know, break down and cry, Mm -hmm. they hold that against her. So he would have been back in the family home, found not guilty of, of a crime, and he is not guilty, so the jury found him not guilty, and you have to say, what happened to her? I've no idea. But at that point, what we said was, we're onto something, and we're onto something that the police clearly need assistance with. And that's why we started to do the research, get the grants, publish the papers, get out there and do it. I keep telling her story because my real faith is that she's still alive. And we couldn't help her that day. But, you know, if she does hear it, maybe she will recognise it's her case. Mm. And at least she'll know what she's done since then, that our research is her legacy. And Mm. what we've been able to do through her case is make sure that so many other young vulnerable victims aren't in her position of not being believed. And that, to me, is her legacy. So that's why we do what we do. One of the things that we're trying to do, and we've just got a research grant to do it, which we'll do it out of Lancaster, is that we're looking to automate some of the process. And there's, there's a number of reasons why we want to do that. One, it will be quicker. Two, it will mean that people don't have to look through yeah. all of these images and mm. videos. But it also means that if we can do this automatically, if we can train a machine to learn what's a vein pattern. So how can it separate out what's tendon compared to vein? And we've done some of the um, pilot research on it. We know we can do it. If we can develop those algorithms that are so robust, what we can do is we can set them running on the millions and millions of indecent images of children that the police hold, whether that's Interpol or even national forces. And my aim, my absolute and utter aim would be that we're able to pick up the same identifier and the same perpetrator working out of different countries Mm. because we've never been able to do that before. So we might have somebody who's working in Malaysia between, you know, 2000, 2001, and suddenly we're picking up the same perpetrators putting images out of Germany in 2006. We've never been able to link those international cases before. Maybe we'll be able to do them now. I have another question that may sound like a scoop attempt, but I promise you it's not. <laughs> I see this with every scientist we interview. They've always got like a few papers out that have these bizarre titles that are like, it's something that's never come up in what they talk about, but, but they'll have work from somewhere historically that basically, do you have any kind of forensic work that doesn't, you don't feel gets discussed? That you, you've worked on a project sometime that you just thought, this is so cool. Often you find that our research is driven by the problem that the police officer is seeing. Mm-hmm. So we just had a PhD student completed again. He was a, a senior crime officer and he wanted to be able to direct police to say, these are the sort of implements you will find in a kitchen that are most likely to be the implements that are used in dismembering. If you can't find it, it's absence 
is important mm. because people would normally have those. Similarly, if you find an angle grinder in a bathroom, that's a not a normal place for an angle grinder to be found. And bathrooms, we find, are most likely to be the place where dismemberments occur. Mm. So his research is about where do you do it and how do you do it? And most people don't go out to buy implements for dismemberment because they don't want to risk being caught. So they use the things that are own, in their own properties. And he had a lovely moment. Bear in mind, he's a, he's a senior crime officer, and this was in Dundee. And he went to a well-known DIY store, large national DIY store, and bought several knives and several saws and several things because he wanted to be able to look at the marks that were left on bone. And as he was going through the checkout, the young girl behind the checkout said, are you cutting up a body or something? <laughs> you know? And he went, isn't that interesting though, that somebody would say <laughs> yeah. that to him? And he almost went to say, well, no, I can't. You know, he said, I almost want to say, well, yes, actually I am. But it was, it was pig bones. He was <laughs> I was gonna, gonna ask you if you plan to donate your own body to medical research. So I carry a donor card. Okay. And my rationale is for as long as these organs would serve anybody else, then please have them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, please have them. So my, my first remit is if you can prolong somebody else's life, then do it. I accept that probably when I get to about 65, then they're probably no value to anybody, <laughs> given how much that you know they've been abused over the over the, over the lifetime. And under those circumstances, then I will sign um, the bequeathal form. Ah. And I would like it to go to Dundee. I'd like my body to go to Dundee, simply because I don't want to be formalin embalmed. I want to be teal embalmed. Mm -hmm. So the soft fix method, because then I can be used in so many different ways. But I don't want it to stop there. Once I'm dissected, I want them to, to gather together all the bony bits and I want that boiled down because you've got to get rid of all the fat and everything else that attaches to it. And then I want them to restring my skeleton and I want to stand in the dissecting room. So that's <laughs> yeah, so I, I can carry on teaching for the entirety like, of my day. Is that yes. um, Jeremy Bentham? Yeah, yes. absolutely. But you know, uh, immortality. For, oh I, I can carry on teaching for the rest of my death. Wonderful. That is incredible. That's I was so sort good. of hoping you might yeah, say that. Absolutely. No, I intend to be. My husband doesn't approve. Can I just say? But as I and I'll outlive him anyway. Um, doesn't matter. <laughs> so you also gave me an in back into a geeky anatomy thing. I wanted to ask earlier, and I was like, oh, I've missed my chance. But you gave me the in, which is the teal soft fixation yep. method. The traditional way is formalin. Formalin's not a very nice chemical. The reason it was used is it's a very good preservative and it's a very good antifungal. But what it does, formalin, is it makes the body very rigid and very stiff. And so for when surgeons want to learn different approaches for surgical procedures, formalin embalmed bodies are really no good. Yeah. Prior to 2004 in England and Wales and 2006 in Scotland, it was against the law for a surgeon to practice a procedure on a dead body. Oh, really? <laughs> and that goes back to Burke and Hare. Um, so at that point, we were saying, do you know, we think we can trust the surgeons now. So you could go, if you're a surgeon, you could go into my dissecting room, you could cut the skin, you could move the muscle out of the way, you could saw the femur out, you could not replace it with a prosthesis, because that then is practicing a procedure. So what was the issue that the law had with that? Surgeons were not to be trusted. <laughs> but if you said they could go and it's Burke and Hare. Wow. It literally seriously went goes back to that. And we'd all got to the point saying this is crazy. Okay, yeah. this is absolutely crazy. And so we changed it in 2004, 2006. 
And at that point, the surgeons came back in and went, great, now we can actually practice things. And we want them to practice on dead bodies, not on <laughs> patients. And they're saying, but formula bodies don't work for us. You know, they're just too unrealistic. And there was the most marvelous man called Walter Thiel. And Walter Thiel was based in Graz in Austria. And when he was a young man, during the Second World War, he was shot. And so he came out of the military service and went into Graz in Austria and became a teacher of anatomy. And he was very friendly with the local butcher. And he was amazed that the local butcher, when he looked at the hams, that he could preserve the hams, but still retain the color mm. and still retain the flexibility. And he said, I wonder if I could do that on a human. And so he started practicing on animals. And then by about the 1970s, he perfected it in the human. And he perfected the soft fix method. And most universities nowadays, I suspect, would have slapped an IP on it, an intellectual <laughs> property, and said, right, now we can commercialize this. He published it. Oh. So his entire recipe went out to the world. That's open science, right? There. <laughs> yeah. And very few people picked it up. This is the thing, because formalin was still being used. Formalin in... was fine. There was no problem with formalin. Yeah. Up to that point, there was no problem with formalin. But come the 2000s, we knew there was a problem coming with formalin because the surgeons didn't like it. I sent two members of staff out to Graz and Austria and said, go and, go and speak to them. Tell me what's wrong with this method. What doesn't work? And they came back and they said, actually, there's, there's nothing. It's about the same cost as formalin. It does everything that we say it will do. The only thing we'd have to do is we'd have to probably change our mortuary. And I thought, well, do you know, if there's no downside, we're going to do it. So I persuaded the university to give us a couple of thousand pounds as a pilot. And we did the classic things that, that children in the UK are brought up on, which is Blue Peter <laughs> and Dad's Army. So that we created this Heath Robinson mechanism of embalming to see if the teal approach worked. So we had a very big fish tank. Um, that was being thrown out of the zoology department. So we used that to submerse the bodies. We had an old piece of perspex on the top that helped to keep the bodies down. You know, it really was Heath Robinson. It was all appropriate, but, you know, Heath yeah. Robinson. <laughs> and so we embalmed two bodies. We called one Henry and we called one Flora. And once they'd been embalmed, we allowed the surgeons to come and practice all sorts of procedures and then to evaluate it. And every single surgeon came back and went, absolutely. If, if we can do this, there's so much that we can do. So at that point, I persuaded Her Majesty's Inspector of Anatomy to say that our mortuary was rather antiquated <laughs> and that it needed to be upgraded. And so I went to the university and said, the mortuary is out of date, so we're going to have to refurbish it. But we've got this real opportunity that nobody else is doing. And the university went, Okay, we'll refurbish the mortuary. I said, well, it's not actually that simple because the mortuary we've got is too small for what I have in mind. We really need to build. Build me a new mortuary. <laughs> and they went, okay, how much is that going to cost? So, well, to refurbish my mortuary, you were going to give me a million pounds. So if you give me the million pounds, I'll go raise the other million that we need to, to build the mortuary. Mm -hmm. And so we set up a program that was called Million for a Morgue. <laughs> uh, which was a public engagement wow. fundraising event. The people love okay? alliteration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a million per morgue. And we decided that we'd go to the crime writers because the crime writers used us all the time for, you know, is, does this sound real in, in a sort of plot? And it was Val McDermott who was behind most of it. And Val went away and found nine of her friends 
And the rationale was, you know, if you're Chris Hoy, you want to have a velodrome named after you. Who'd want a mortuary named after yeah. them? And we thought, the crime writers. <laughs> so we, we put out, we had these 10 crime writers all vying out to their fans. I want the mortuary named after me. And whoever raises the most money, that's who the mortuary is going to be named after. So in typical Blue Peter style, we had the totalizer <laughs> online so that everybody could see who was in the lead. Yeah, it's absolutely great. So a pound bought you a vote, 10 pounds bought you 10 votes, 100 pounds bought you 100 votes. And so we raised a huge amount of money from the public. But then it went slightly feral in that Caro Ramsey decided that what she'd do is that she'd create the killer cookbook. And the killer cookbook was all of the crime writers could put in their own recipes and all the proceeds of the killer cookbook came to the fundraiser. And then it was short-raced, it was shortlisted for an award in Europe somewhere as a cookbook, which is ludicrous. You should never, ever have a cookbook coming out of an anatomy department. It's a really, really bad it idea. Seems so yeah, yeah. Anyhow, we went with it. And then we had uh, Stuart McBride wrote a children's book just before Christmas, which was called The Wholesome Adventures of Skeleton Bob. And all of the proceeds for that, again, went to the event. And so we, we raised the money that we needed to build the mortuary. And it's sparking all these public events. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you've no idea. So, so we had the mortuary was named after Val, because Val was never going to let anybody else win, ever, anyway. So we have the Val McDermott mortuary. And then because Stuart raised so much money, we named the dissecting room after him. So it's a Stuart McBride dissecting room. And then in the teal embalming suite, there, there are tanks. So four bodies go into a tank. And we, we named each of the tanks after all the other crime writers so that they could use that as publicity until we got to Lee Child. And Lee said, if I win, you can't name the mortuary after me because it can't be the child oh, oh, yeah. inappropriate, but you can call it Jack Reacher. So one of our tanks is called the Jack Reacher tank. So there you go. That's, that's what the Otila Bowing was about. Nice. So cool. That's an excellent <laughs> that's story. I thought that was just going to be a talk through it. So sorry. Yeah. Procedure. No, no, that's much better. Well, it has been absolutely fantastic to catch up with today. Oh, I'm so grateful for coming in and, and spending the time. Thank you. Because I know you've got a very, very busy time. <laughs> Yeah. Never too Four busy. Jobs or whatever it is. Something like that. Yeah. You can see my notes actually going for a further three pages. <laughs> we that. actually managed to follow the rough <laughs> structure there. This podcast is made possible by Brilliant.org, a great resource if you want to learn something new every day. Brilliant.org teaches you science from the ground up by setting questions and challenges every day and then explaining the science behind them. Brilliant.org's newest feature, Daily Challenges, makes learning a daily habit. Every day they publish several problems to provide a quick and fascinating view into maths, logic, science, engineering or computer science. With courses on everything from computational biology to orbital physics, whatever you'd like to learn more about or brush up on, Brilliant.org have a course or chapter for you. You're bound to love it, especially since using the link in the podcast description will get the first lucky 200 users 20% off their premium plan. Get in! Well, that was quite something. I'm, I'm blown away, if I'm honest. That was yeah, amazing. Sue's wealth of experience was pretty majestic, and I think we can all agree she's one of the best storytellers on the planet, surely. Yeah, She'll hate us saying this, though. Yeah, but, but it's true. And with such emotionally charged subject matter, to come through it with such humour is impressive. That was one of the things that struck me the most, the way she's kind of, her, her job requires her to be extremely detached and able to handle what must be extremely disturbing work, but at the same time she's maintained that incredible storytelling, emotional engagement, which 
I think, just kind of shone through in everything that was happening. And she wouldn't let us pay her a single compliment. Every time we tried to pay her a compliment, you couldn't see this. Try, try to say something nice, she'd shake her head. She and... was trying to sink into the floor. Yeah. A bit like our producer Sam does when we try and pay him a compliment. Yeah. All very humble people. Now, <laughs> no, we're not humble at all. We're attention seekers. So uh, we are in the Borough Pub. We've had a fantastic time recording with Sue Black today, and it is going fantastically. We're having such a great time, and we just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in for sharing, for reviewing, for telling your friends about us. We're getting a lot of activity on Twitter and it's just really nice to see that you guys are enjoying the podcast as much as we're enjoying making it, basically. Yeah, it's been an absolute hoot. It's been so, so much fun to do and we're just glad that everyone else is enjoying it. So yeah, please just do keep telling us how much fun you're having listening to it. Do keep on using the hashtag Pintcast19 all over Twitter. Uh, head on to our website, pintofscience.co.uk slash podcast if you haven't heard all the episodes yet. We've got plenty available and plenty more to come. Yeah, and if you go to pintofscience.co.uk, not forward slash podcast, then you can see tickets for Pint of Science events, which are coming up very soon. Certainly. So do get online, share, subscribe on all major podcast providers, and we will see you next week for another Pint of Science. Hello, everyone. I'm Sam, the producer of the Pint of Science podcast. I usually sit behind the desk whilst Callum and Jim do the talking. But I do have a podcast of my own, and since you're clearly into learning and having a bit of fun, you might just like it. It's called That Was Genius, and it's a history podcast in which my friend Tom and I surprise each other every week with a funny, gruesome, or just plain odd historical story. Other than having a weekly theme, the rest is up for grabs, so there's lots of silly jokes and plenty of dubious accents. A bit like these. Mais oui, these eight months old donuts. I have never tasted anything like it. Sacre bleu. I've never tasted anything so hard. I love the presentation box. When I open it, all the flies come out. <laughs> it's a beautiful. It is a multi-sensory experience. It is wonderful. <laughs> Fantastic. The, the smell, the sight. Oh. <laughs> if you're interested in finding out more, search your favourite podcast app for That Was Genius or go to www.thatwasgeniuspodcast.com.